Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. Geography is important in every story, but it takes on a special significance when a film is shot on location. In the Art and Craft column of a July-August issue, location manager Ken Levette discusses how he finds places that will suit the creative needs of the production. When scouting cities, he says, quote, I look at how the city was built and how it relates to the project that I'm scouting for, end quote. Aside from giving this sense of history and contributing to the film's overall look, these places also have special significance for those who have actually lived in those cities. For this episode, I was joined by Nick Pinkerton, longtime contributor to Film Comment and sundry other publications. Margaret Barton Fumo, longtime contributor to Film Comment. And Eric Hines, writer and associate curator at the Museum of the Moving Image. To discuss a film shot in their hometown and how each utilizes the resources around them. Here's our conversation. Well, thank you all for coming. So today we're going to be talking about location shooting. If nothing else, when you make a film, you're pointing a camera at a part of the world and you're saying, only look at this part of the world. I'm breaking up the space this way and look at this part of the world. This action is happening in this part of the world. And so today I'm going to be asking our lovely participants to go around and talk about locations one film per person that were shot in their hometown and assess how is it representing that space accurately? How does that location interface with the rest of the film, with the characters? If I could briefly take us off course, is worth talking about uh, when we're on the subject of location shooting, because I think there's a big difference between films which use a place for its particular qualities and are attentive to the place mm. and use a place for its non-specificity. Right, yeah. right. Because if we think about a very, very broad idea of the history of location shooting in American pictures, outside of the early, uh, the early Wild West years, we, when we get into the studio system, we think of the 1930s and 40s as being mostly studio bound. And this starts to open up through the 1950s. And as you get into the later 1960s and into the 70s, you really open up and start shooting all around the country. Mm-hmm. And this remains to the day to the day a standard. The studio bound films are a real exception. But what I think often occurs is today we get sort of the worst of both worlds <laughs> because productions are driven to certain places because of the tax incentives. So in the early aughts, every third movie you see will be shot in Vancouver mm-hmm. or Shreveport or North Carolina, mm-hmm. let's say. And there was New Orleans. Sure. But... How often did you see movies that were actually set, set in yeah. Vancouver right. or Shreveport yeah. or North Carolina? Right. These places were used. The Nicholas Sparks films were. <laughs> sure. and, and True Detective. <laughs> yeah. But for the most part, very often what you saw is these places being used for their non-specificity. Right. Mm. 
like mm-hmm. their ability to double for really anywhere. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes New York, but more often just a generalized city. Right. And often poorly, I think, yeah. okay. especially a lot of the Canada shoots that are supposed to be New York or Philadelphia or. Yeah. Why wouldn't you? It's just, it's such an odd thing. Like, why yeah. wouldn't you? I understand you make certain decisions in advance. What's where is where, where's a reasonable place to shoot? Where we can pull these things off that we've scripted already. But then once you're there, isn't that an opportunity to kind of absorb that a little bit? Yeah, Nick, why don't you kick us off? Oh, gee whiz. Um, <laughs> well, as uh, I've often had occasion to mention before, I. Hail from Cincinnati, Ohio, the queen city of the West, built on seven hills like Rome, which Winston Churchill called the most beautiful of America's inland cities. And I can take this all manner of different directions. (laughs) I can give you an abridged history of uh, the various films that have uh, marched through the city. And in particular, I'd like to talk about one, uh, Larry Yust's film, Home Bodies, Uh, It might be worth noting that right now uh, Cincinnati is uh, really Hollywood on the Ohio because uh, as are many other cities throughout the Buckeye State because of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit, which was uh, created in 2009. To give a little scuttlebutt on that, uh, here is from the website. Provides a refundable transferable tax credit of 30% on production cast and crew wages, plus other eligible in-state spending. The Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit was created in 2009 to encourage and develop a strong film industry in Ohio, and it has done its job to date. And in fact, in 2016, uh, around this time last year, Governor John Kasich doubled the cap on it from $20 million to $40 million. And there has been an enormous kind of boom in shooting in the city of Cincinnati, Uh, since 2009 and this goes also for Cleveland and other cities basically that have an intact downtown core that can double for New York or Mm -hmm. somewhere else that people are interested in seeing movies uh, set Um, though we do have a handful um, of movies that use Cincinnati as Cincinnati the fits probably being uh, the most noteworthy example by Anna Rose Homer which is at the uh, Lincoln Rec Center, I believe, on Lynn Street in the uh, West End. Otherwise, some noteworthy recent examples are uh, Don Cheadle's Miles Ahead, which I can't say I've had the uh, pleasure of seeing, uh, and, of course, Todd Haynes's Carol, uh, both of which are using Cincinnati for New York uh, to varying degrees of effectiveness from what I've heard of Miles Ahead. It was crazy. That movie's crazy. <laughs> I liked it. I, I liked like, Miles Ahead. <laughs> I because I, I'll say just quick digression. I went between being like, "What is this Lifetime movie?" to like, "I'm totally with this thing." It's it's like it's kind of um, in terms of representing who Miles Davis was. I think I think it gets his spirit right. Yeah, his character. Yeah. yeah. I, I hear the uh, sign for the bar, Mr. Pitifuls, is very prominently used. That's <laughs> as much as I know. Yes. And uh, I should also mention, apparently, Emilio Estevez has uh, been shooting an ensemble piece called The Public at oh. the Hamilton County Public Library. I believe that's since wrapped. Uh <laughs> This will no doubt be uh, one for the record books, a uh, John Gotti biopic starring uh, John Travolta. Whoa. Whoa. Really? Uh, 
helmed by one Kevin Connolly. No less than two James Franco features. (laughs) Where Uh, isn't that guy? (laughs) uh, In my father's neighborhood, Northside, uh, David Lowry and uh, Robert Redford shooting The Old Man with the Gun. Mm -hmm. And this I did not know until yesterday uh, that the Yorgos Lanthimos movie, Killing of a Sacred Deer, was apparently shot in the hospital where I was born, Christ Hospital. Very nice. So uh, a lot of action, (laughs) a lot of action right now. So the film I wanted to talk about is, it's called Home Bodies. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is the second feature directed by a guy called Larry Yust, who had come up through the School of the Army Signal Corps and had taken a job with Encyclopedia Britannica's Educational Films Wing. His father was the editor for Encyclopedia Britannica, which can't have hurt. And there completed many fine, fine classroom uh, shorts, including an adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, which I think you can find on YouTube and which is entirely worth your time, and then crossed over into feature directing, And his first effort in that regard was a movie called Trick Baby, an adaptation of a novel by the pimp-turned novelist Iceberg Slim, and I believe the only Iceberg Slim screen adaptation to date, which is shot mostly in the more rundown precincts of North Philadelphia, though it has a great chase sequence in the Italian market. Uh, in South Philadelphia. And the the novel, I should note, is set in Chicago, but he very much adapts it to a Philadelphia of the early 1970s. And I actually had occasion to meet Mr. Yust some years ago in Los Angeles, and he was very emphatic about the fact that he always did his location scouting himself. To the best of my knowledge today, he's still operating as a photographer and does sort of panoramic city views. So it's obvious that trying to get some something of the flavor of a urban area down is something that is now and was important to him. And I think it really comes across in the next film that he uh, completed, which is Homebodies, which is a film that not only gets great atmospheric qualities from the city where it shoots but also the subject matter uh, is very much about urbanity and very much tied up in slum clearance uh, urban redevelopment and certain other such buzzwords which were very much in the air through the 1960s and into the 70s in America's urban cores and the Plot concerns a old triple three or four story downtown building whose residents are very much uh, in their dotage, 60s, 70s, and older still, who are forcibly being moved uh, by the city in order to clear space for a high rise that's going up. So... The script is written without a particular city in mind, though, of course, this sort of thing is happening in cities all over the United States in the early to middle 1970s. And they scout Cleveland and they scout St. Louis and they eventually land on Cincinnati. The city in which the film takes place is never mentioned by name, but for any Cincinnati, and it's very clear. And one of the main preconditions 
is that they needed major demolition to be going on. And as it happens in 1970-71, there's major, major clearance going on in the area in back of City Hall. This is the West End, which is actually the main locations for this are about four blocks away from where most of the fits was shot. Mm. So, it's, so you can actually see the result of the mm. clearance that's going on in homebodies in the fits. Uh, between these two films, you have a pretty good document of, you know, 45 years in the life of Western Cincinnati. So they came to Cincinnati, shot four weeks there. The only thing that wasn't there is the reverse angle of the high rise going up. And all of that material is shot in downtown Los Angeles. I believe, as one who is not over familiar with the Los Angeles skyline, that it's the Bunker Hill area at the approximately the same time when all of the Victorian gingerbread is being cleared out there for large uh, you know, uh, Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill glass boxes to go in. The interiors, I think, uh, were also shot in Los Angeles. The interiors of this apartment building shot, I believe, on one of the sound stages used for Gone with the Wind. And what I like so much about this movie is, firstly, there's nothing quite like it. Because the premise is the oldsters, when faced with eviction, decide that they are going to engage in some light industrial sabotage mm -hmm. on the tower that's going up. And this light industrial sabotage quickly segues into actual murder. Uh, most of this is on the incitement of uh, a woman uh, called Maddie, played by Paula Truman, who may be recognizable from uh, the outlaw Josie Wales, who is uh, the instigator and who supervises the sabotage of one of the elevators on the building site, then is very much present and uh, participant in the killing of a city services uh, employee who comes to clear them out. And as tends to happen when you start murdering people, it just sort of snowballs from there. So it's, uh, you know, it's like uh, a very, very dark, batteries not included. <laughs> <laughs> and the ensemble cast, which includes uh, Ian Wolfe, from uh, On Dangerous Ground, and several other old kind of bit players, just people who'd been kicking around Hollywood or dinner theater or whatever, you know, fringes of showbiz forever. It's a fantastic ensemble cast to bounce off one another very, very well. The area in which it's shot, it's largely like old Italianate uh, brick townhouses, and it gets this almost German expressionistic quality out of, at, at times it seems like you're, I don't know, looking at uh, Dusseldorf in, in 1915. Like uh, there's something very old and rusty and slightly ominous that is, is brought out. And most importantly, you see the indelible fact of a city being maimed, caught on camera. You see the wrecking balls coming in. And this is something that, uh, to, give, to give an example, like, it never goes away. It never goes away, the, the machinations of power brokers right. in trying to stamp 
themselves onto the face of a city. These very, very small men who have an abiding interest in creating these little fiefdoms, <laughs> men of limited taste and limited intelligence, but unlimited bankroll, are able to do exactly that. The very age-old story of those without agency being shoved out of a place that they should rightfully be able to call their own. And that, more than anything else, I think, makes it a marvelously representative film, not only of a certain place in a certain time, but of a age-old story of urbanity. Yes, because if cities are... They're constantly changing. That's the nature of a city. But what you're talking about specifically is a very insidious way in which that happens and obviously continues to happen all over the place still to this day. Despite your love for the film, is there any part of you that's a little bothered that Cincinnati isn't named considering it's such an essential aspect of what the film is? I can't say because it makes such extensive use of the city, even in building set pieces. At one point, Maddie, the Paul Truman character, is trying to dispose of the uh, social worker's body, and she takes her to the Western Hills Viaduct, which is this great public works era project that goes over the train yards and uh, is sort of struggling to get the get the corpse over the side. Later, there's this incredibly protracted chase sequence where the rest of the building residents kind of turn on Maddie, and it's a chase sequence involving people who are like 75 years old every last one of them so it moves at this really molasses like pace as they go through i mean the geography is a little problematic tom anderson might not approve of it necessarily but they you know they go through the newly redesigned fountain square and then they go out to burnett woods and they get on the paddle boats and it's a chase sequence with you know, octogenarians in paddle boats and it moves at exactly the pace that you would think it <laughs> moves Great. as they uh, slowly surround her. So more than uh, more than due credit, I think, is is given to the city. And I think it's it's used wonderfully well. I have a transition, which I wasn't actually thinking about, but th hearing you speak about that film again made me think of a film I just saw last night which is just very, very briefly talk about uh, to get to other things. But um, the filmmaker John Wilson, who had a short uh, New York Film Festival last year, and we showed a bunch of his films at first look at the museum in January, he has a sort of work in progress, a film called Road to Magna Santi, and he showed it at uh, the Essential Union Docks in Brooklyn uh, last night. Um, and he's sort of using his own sort of irreverent, humorous, but sneakily serious uh, method to talk about development in New York City and how even the, the further reaches of, of Brooklyn and Queens and how they are being transformed by kind of needless giant glass towers. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so he's wrestling with that a little bit. So whenever that's finished, whenever it can makes its way, I, I recommend that. Um, but to talk about New York, yes. there are a couple of films I'm going to talk about, or one in particular, as oh. you know, which yes. is Good Time, yes. which is the Safdie Brothers film, which is uh, the cover story of yes. film Comment. A lovely feature by Eric. Um, thank you. But there are things about that that we could talk about here. Or I can go into a little bit more depth. But first, I'm from Staten Island, New York. And I have to put a little – After, in, in terms of like as you uh, name-checked uh, or location-checked some Cincinnati films, I have to talk about the great Staten Island films. Yes. Um, because I do think spiritually a lot of what the Safties are doing in terms of Queens um, relates to some of my favorite uh, films of Staten Island. 
And there's a film that links the two, I think. Um, but in terms of sound, the, the fam- most famous is The Godfather. The opening wedding scene of The Godfather is, I believe, Grimes Hill. Um, and uh, you've got uh, the from the high to the low, Madonna's Papa Don't Preach video, um, which takes place in northern Staten Island. Great Danny Aiello performance. Great. Well, of course. <laughs> He's um, always great. <laughs> great Staten Islander. Danny great Aiello. Staten Islander. Thank you. <laughs> Working Girl, of course. A lot of the sequences in Working Girl that are on Staten Island are actually very close to where Papa Don't Preach is. I don't know if that's a great Alec Baldwin performance, but he's, you know, it's a, a little caricature, Staten he, Island. He's hot. He's very I think hot. He's yeah. young and hot. He's it's very fine. shirtless. Um, <laughs> uh, I think the most recent really great use of Staten Island is Damsels in Distress. Mm-hmm. Um, the Whit Stillman film uses Sailor Snug Harbor, which is my favorite location in the entirety of the borough, home for retired sailors. It became a cultural center and was very important to me growing up. And he uses the beautiful architecture there. Not a great film, but absolutely essential Staten Island location film is Easy Money, the Rodney Dangerfield film um, with Joe Pesci. And that is, I think about that when I hear you talk, Nick, about your film in terms of relation to Cincinnati, because it is a, it's a, it's very particular. It's very specific of a moment in time, the early eighties, which is nearly two decades after the Verrazano bridge was built. And you've got like a full generation of Jewish and Italian influx and neighborhoods created to accommodate that influx. And easy money takes place very much in one of these like two story, tacky, not particularly well-made houses with a backyard, which is what the big promise was. You're going to move from Brooklyn to Staten Island. You're going to be able to have property in a backyard. The backyards are smack up against each other. And there's a lot of great usage of like aerial, aerial shots showing you that there is, you know, 20 homes all within a tiny little spot and everybody's having a party in their little backyard. Um, but there was also like great opening sequences where they're driving all around Staten Island to all these like uh, um, nighttime locations. Very recommended for Staten Island. The film that will get me to the Safties, however, is Saturday Night Fever. Of course. Which is a great, 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 great New York film, I think. And though I don't think they ever actually make it to Staten Island for any sequences, the Verrazano is a huge part of of that film. And I think not just because it's a great location, but because of what it represents. In terms of outer borough or bridge and tunnel, if you want to sort of use the epithets, but like the um, films, Saturday Night Fever is a great one because Bay Ridge is pretty far away from Manhattan. So not only are you in New York City, you're very far removed from what you refer to as the, see, I'm even saying it. I'm such right. a Staten Islander. Like yes. <laughs> it's the city and yet you're still not in the city. You refer to the city as the thing right. that you're actually taking the train to get to, or in my case, a bus to a boat to get to. <laughs> um, and so, uh, Saturday Night Fever is very much about the distance, basically, from a neighborhood like Bay Ridge to Manhattan, where your, all your dreams can come true and you can become something other than what you were made in your neighborhood. So I think that the di- being able to feel the distance is a really important part of uh, Saturday Night Fever and why the Verrazano is a, this, this item, this object of fascination, but also like kind of a, of, a, of oblivion, like this incredibly high structure above body of water connecting you to Staten Island, which is further away from the city. So the fact that a place, it's a place of, of, of sort of heedless tragedy is important. And that that bridge is contrasted with the journey by subway into Manhattan by Tony Monero at the end. I think that a film like that is a really important touchstone for good time, as is After Hours, the Scorsese film. And they've, 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 and they've said as much. 
the Safties have made films not entirely, but mostly in New York. Their features have been in New York. Um, Pleasure Being Robbed and Daddy Long Legs and Heaven Knows What, their last one. All very smart in terms of how they approach the city. What I think is a step forward about this one is they make great use of of Queens, which is not the borough that you nor- that that gets shown on on film very often, and its distance from Manhattan is a big part of it. The subway journeys are very meticulously shown. There's a shot where Robert Pattinson, like he's on the E train and he looks at the map and you show where we're going, and. Yeah, you'd think in, in in terms of film, if you're going to make a film about New York, you don't even you don't even these are not these are not subway lines that you pay any attention to. These are not neighborhoods you pay any attention to, and I think they do a great job of finding locations which are not standard movie locations, but putting them in an action film like this. Uh, it, it's, it's resourceful, it's exciting, it's interesting in terms of being a New Yorker. But the thing that sort of takes it a step further is I think they do a great job of casting mm-hmm. people either from those locations or at times famous actors or, you know, well-regarded actors and putting them in these spaces that feel right. Um, Because it's one thing to, Hey, we're going to make an action film and set it in Queens. It's another thing to say, great. We are following characters through action sequences in Queens, but where they're passing through people actually live and have jobs Mm -hmm. and are trying to live, you know, they're trying to actually take care of themselves. And so they're not background. Nobody, I think, in this film is background. And I think you could say in some of their previous films there was a danger of that because they're just so excited about having main characters who are living unconventionally and what the costs to other people is not something they're going to spend any time on. And I think in good time, you, I felt throughout, and it certainly accumulates that whether you're in a hospital or whether you're in a, a, a bail bondsman's office or, what, you know, mm-hmm. or a bank, wherever you are, you get a real sense that somebody on the other side, whether it's a reverse shot or somebody like on the other side of your um, main characters are, are are very present. Yeah. They're alive. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, I think what happens to the security guard at the amusement park really speaks to that. And it's Absolutely. like really sad. You can't help but think like, what is this poor guy going to do? And then yeah. Not only do they take his clothes, they literally steal his uniform, but then they go to his apartment and they just fucking set up shop and are just like drinking his nice liquor and just totally abusing the space in right. a way that's like, it, it drives home. Everyone has a background and the sort of like facelessness of stealing money from a bank, say. There, you you, get you spend a, just enough time with that teller yes. to get the sense that this sucks for that person. Exactly. This fucking sucks exactly. with what's happening to her. Yeah. And so you may be like excited about a bank heist but you have to acknowledge what this person's doing and it is very it's you know again like i think which i write about the the kind of the, the creeping reluctance i have in terms of their films is this kind of exultation in like using the city as a playground and mm-hmm. such especially like in the, along the, the lower depths of society um a little bit too much you know, verging on pleasure to be in these realms. Mm-hmm. And this film just, I think, just kind of, I don't want to say flips it, but make, makes that queasiness I've always felt a text in the film. Yeah. And it comes out in, in, in both of those situations that you're talking about. But, the, but, the, but when you go to the, the residence of that security guard, that's a really interesting thing too, because you're going to a public housing, right. uh, a, the Tivoli houses, and he, but it's still it's still a nice apartment in terms of their concern. Yeah. It's a nice apartment, which always like which is a very very interesting New York thing. Mm-hmm. Like you talk to, you know, a working class struggling white guy in New York, 
And sometimes that person will resent people who have public housing yep. because it's low rent, it's in a good location. Wow, you're kind of an alphabet city, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and so like though we think of public housing stereotype as being like the last place you want to be, it's actually, you know, it's not a bad place for certain people who approach it that way. And so like the idea of this guy coming to America, mm -hmm. getting a job, working his ass off and having like made a nice home for himself in a public housing like that's crucial yeah and actually to have that contrasted with a bunch of hustlers <laughs> who are you know in and out of prison yeah like that is something they could aspire to but they're not going to put the work in to get a space like that yeah. and so that's there's a lot going on with that and mm -hmm. there's a lot of thought that, that goes into that that i'm really grateful in terms mm -hmm. of this film yeah and i i think the other thing just say, I remember there was one time I was in Iowa and someone was, I was talking with somebody and she was like, I have a, maybe a silly question, but do people in New York live in houses? And I was like, well, don't worry. No, that's fine. Because if you only see move, you know, you only experience New York through film or TV, everyone's just an apartment or a giant loft if, right. or it's something. It's, it's this totally misrepresentation of how the vast majority of people live. And again, like you were saying, the representing New York outside of like, fashionable neighborhoods outside of where the subway lines go. Just like if you only understand New York as how it's represented on the subway map where Manhattan is huge and then yeah. Brooklyn is shrunk and Queens is shrunk and then it's... Well, Staten it, Island is absurd in the subway map. Oh, yeah. Staten Island yeah. is uh, like 25 feet from uh, the southern <laughs> Exa tip of Manhattan. Exactly. And it's yeah, also yeah, yeah. shrunk into like yeah. a third of its size. Yeah, exactly. You can actually get to lower Manhattan if you... Get a good running. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you might have to hop on Liberty Island on your way. <laughs> yeah, just, just if you're not, if your, if your knees aren't so good, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's like when it's a nice corrective to those sorts of, yeah. Well, I mean, and it's a car film too. Like totally you have to methods of modes of transportation, um, which is very queen. Queen's a very car culture. Like that's yeah. where you would have a car. That's where you'd need to get around. It also dips into Western Long Island, which mm -hmm. is interesting too because. Oh, yeah. We taught we act as if Long Island is like some like separate entity from Queens, but like if you're in Eastern Queens, there's no difference, and so like there's a porous border between neighborhoods and you know like Eastern Queen neighborhoods in Western Long Island, which mm -hmm. is also really fantastic. Yeah, I think when you talk about the Safties, like so many American filmmakers of a certain ilk, they have a very profound connection to the new American cinema or independent right. cinema of the mm -hmm. late 1960s and 1970s, right. which I always refer to as the sort of discover America period because yeah. so many of these films, I've talked on this uh, podcast about George Romero's uh, Martin before, like you want to know what Braddock, Pennsylvania looks <laughs> like right. in 1976? Watch Martin. Right. If you want to know what like municipal Salt Lake City looks like, Right. Watch chilly scenes of winter. If you want right. to take a trip to Kansas City, watch Prime Cut. Right. And oh, we showed Cinderella Liberty at the museum for the Con Film Festival, and it's like red light district in Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You wouldn't even know that, you know, I don't know. Like, that's a very particular thing. But oh, yeah. Or the last detail, right. which takes you all the way up the eastern seaboard. And right. precisely, like, I don't understand why not take advantage of that. Yeah. I would rather any day of the week see a movie actually set in Vancouver than a movie that is set in, it's not really Vancouver. Quote, quote, New York, yeah. Because I feel like, you know, and this is something 
worth talking about, I think, too, is that certain cities have this cachet, right? It's this idea that, you know, this is a New York story, even if it's not actually shot in New York. And that, you know, there's a certain... Invariably, uh, helicopter and or drone shot yes. of uh, downtown. <laughs> preferably, I know a preferably a drone shot. Eric's Those a are good. drone proponent. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. but, but I said, Nothing creepy or weird about that uh, technology at all. Introduce, Touched by human hand, how, the drone. How better to introduce a movie set in a city than to show the city from a perspective that nobody who lives there has ever seen it from? <laughs> Unless they're literally a helicopter pilot. <laughs> it feels like a screensaver a lot of the time. Well, you know, I, I broached the issue of uh, Tom Anderson uh, mm-hmm. earlier and his Los Angeles plays itself in which he makes this definition between like a commuter cinema and a pedestrian cinema. Right. And his terms are a bit dogmatic at times for my uh, for my taste, but we've actually moved on from the like automobile cinema <laughs> to the drone cinema. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, and it is like this very like. There's no one in the driver's seat. No, no, it's like it's like it's this remote control cinema. It's a it's like this weird internet 3.0. Internet is everywhere. You just sort of like you know use your cursor or whatever from a distance, and it's not the tactility isn't really there. Well, yeah, I mean. I'm really very smitten by this recently evolving phenomenon where it actually looks like establishing shots are just like low DPI Google image search results. <laughs> <laughs> like you're yeah. watching a movie that's like shot on a state of the art uh, digital camera and then suddenly everything is just artifacted to shit. Know, yeah. <laughs> As you get a like view of the Boston skyline and dirty water plays or whatever. <laughs> or just break up the yeah. break up the action. But we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back. Now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. Margaret? Mm Mm-hmm. Nick had mentioned uh, Philly a little bit, but do you want to talk about yours? Sure. I'm here to talk about Brian De Palma's blowout shot in his hometown and also my hometown of Philadelphia. And I have a lot of personal uh, associations with the film, too. It came out in 1981. It's very much depicts the Philadelphia of my childhood. And I've always, by the way, wanted to make a T-shirt or wanted someone else to make me a T-shirt that says... I heart Brian De Palma, but instead of the heart, it's the Liberty Bell. So if anyone out there wants to make that T-shirt, I'll buy it off of you. Um, (laughs) Giving money away. (laughs) But is that like I ring Brian De Palma? Like. Yeah, I guess so. I ring ring Brian De Palma at work. His work. Let's not overthink it. Come on. (laughs) Um, But Philadelphia being uh, not only the city of brotherly love, but the birthplace of America... Uh, for blowout, Brian De Palma invented this fictional uh, holiday of Liberty Day, which was supposedly the hundredth anniversary since the last time the bell was rung. Um, and this holiday just pervades the film. The film is kind of based around this holiday. There are posters for it all throughout 
the film, just about every scene has a poster of it. There are different events related to Liberty Day and, of course, the Liberty Day Parade, which is the site of the big finale of the film where John Travolta chases after John Lithgow and... Nancy Allen, of course, from 30th Street Station along Market Street through City Hall and out to Penn's Landing where the fireworks are and the big ending occurs. And along the way, actually, he crashes his car into the department store, which also happens to be the setting for Mannequin. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But as for... Who could forget? Yeah, who can forget? Uh, as for the city and how it's depicted in the film, there's a certain seediness to it, a little bit of grime, I think. But at the same time, it's also depicted as being very bustling and exciting. And I think that works for the film. All of the characters in the film, I mean, all of the characters in the film have very seedy jobs. Travolta, who works above a uh, adult movie theater, he works on these sleazy kind of film productions. Nancy Allen and uh, Dennis Franz entrap uh, wealthy men by photographing them in compromising positions. John Lithgow, the psycho murderer, I mean, clearly goes without saying that his job is is filthy. <laughs> and the police and politicians are all corrupt, so there's really just like no way out. There's mm-hmm. a pervasive anxiety throughout the film too, which I think some of the big crowd scenes kind of lend themselves to. Scenes in Reading Terminal Market and um, the Gallery Mall, made famous by Will Smith's lyric in uh, Parents Just Don't Understand, (laughs) (laughs) is the site of a fantastic split diopter shot with Nancy Allen's double or someone who's meant to look like Nancy Allen next to the escalator is a photograph of Nancy Allen. And it's just a great one of his great split diopter shots. The film itself, too, is just it's beautifully filmed but it's also very ugly i mean the first time i watched it i just i couldn't even handle the ending i burst out crying (laughs) (laughs) i cried the first time um it's just a very ugly lithgow just is murdering of his own volition like he doesn't even he's gone off on a tangent and he's just committing these disgusting murders just just to because he feels like it really and Nancy Allen, spoiler, you know, is killed at the end and almost for no reason at all. It's just that she gets kind of stomped on throughout the whole film and then she's just murdered and it's it's so incredibly bleak. But it kind of works for the city, too, <laughs> you know, because the city of Philadelphia is is beautiful and also sometimes a little bit bleak. Um Every I have this very warm feeling of nostalgia when I watch it, but then at the same time, any time it digresses off to, you know, a dark alleyway or a or an empty lot, I'm also reminded of that aspect of the city. Um, and yeah, just for me, it was filmed around the time of my childhood, and my father was a uh, photographer, and I kind of grew up in his studio while my mother was teaching high school, so. I kind of relate to the film in that way. It was an interesting time in this for the city then too. It was your childhood. It's also, you know, not so long past the um, centennial mm-hmm. or the bicentennial, excuse me, which was, there was a lot of money poured into the city in terms mm-hmm. of events. Like there's a lot of focusing on Philly during that time, but it's also a rough time 
mm-hmm. economically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the there's a very patriotic theme throughout the film, too, that goes beyond just the Liberty Day. Uh, the motel that they stay in is red, white, and blue themed. You know, even in just the film, there's a lot of blues and reds and mm-hmm. just uh, very patriotic symbols all over the city. And of course, that incredible last shot or the with second the fireworks. To last shot with yeah. the fireworks. Yeah, and- with the fireworks. And um, as for more specific locations, like I think that Travolta lives in Old City. I think he lives there. But And if he did, it, w- it would have been affordable at the time, which now, of course, is no longer. And then Nancy Allen lives above and off of South Street, which would have been a very bohemian location if you ever remember that song, South Street, where all the hippies meet. <laughs> um, she lives above a scene, which is a health food store that is still around today. Hmm. It's interesting to note in this case, though, it's, it's, it's a pretty worn out observation, but De Palma really learned from the Hitchcock playbook in terms of using locations mm. because for example you can't stand outside of the United Nations without thinking of North by Northwest you certainly have Philadelphia like I, I think immediately of the beginning of Shadow of a Doubt where Uncle Charlie is holed up in this boarding house with a view of just a, a dirty lot <laughs> where the two government men start to you know, creep up on him. And similarly, like anytime I detrain in the 30th Street station, I'm like, eh, here we are. <laughs> anytime I walk by City Hall, I think about Travolta bombing through there <laughs> in his Jeep. Like it's this very, very postcardish way of uh, using locations or even in some cases falsifying locations. For example, Baltimore is always associated in my mind with a total mat shot in Marnie of that <laughs> block of row houses with the big ship at the end. But and De Palma too shot Dressed to Kill. He shot in the, in the uh, museum. Philadelphia Museum. With the exterior of the Met. Yeah, that was meant to be the Met. <laughs> <laughs> There's two, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not remembering incorrectly, but I think I'm remembering correctly, two really good Philly documentaries mm. this year. Quest. Oh, this year. Wow. Quest, which uh, was just at Rooftop or about to be at Rooftop. Um, and Dina, which won the top prize at Sundance this mm. year. Both not expected spots uh, in, in Philly. Mm. Like not using any recognizable locations that I'm aware of, but but very much of, of the city. In Weissman's um, high school. Mm-hmm. Of course. Philadelphia. We watched that in high school. <laughs> <laughs> That's intense. And they're like, they're like, don't kids, don't get any ideas. We're the good teachers. <laughs> but I'm glad you mentioned Philly. Mm-hmm. So I'm originally from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And there was a film by Miguel Arteta called Cedar Rapids. And you would think that this film, which has the name of a random Midwest city and features references throughout the script to the fact that the the Northern Hemisphere's largest cereal plant is located in this random Midwest city. All these little things. Not actually shot there because um, it, this was in 2009. There was a tax incentive program started by the state and apparently 26 million of 32 million of this tax credit was wrongly awarded. So literally the year that they are about to start shooting, they canceled the program. 
Um, and there are still lawsuits that are being settled with regards to this massive tax fraud. So instead of talking about Cedar Rapids, which, in, which uses Philadelphia to sub for the Cedar Rapids skyline, bizarrely, <laughs> you can literally see the museum steps that Rocky runs up in the shot of Cedar Rapids. Like this guy, like Ed Helms is flying into this vast metropolis, Cedar Rapids, and there's literally every sort of recognizable Philly thing in the shot. of a great skyline. It is. Yeah. It is. I was, um, I was confused when I saw it. I was like, huh? Okay. So but, if, if it, if it had been shot in Cedar Rapids and yes. starring Ed Helms, would it have been a better film? Would it have been? I, no. <laughs> no. Were you in earnest when you called the Philadelphia skyline great? Yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> but instead, instead of talking about Cedar Rapids, I'm going to talk about a film that was definitely, definitely, definitely shot in Iowa, which is The Bridges of Madison County. Mm-hmm. So Robert Weller, uh, he was born in a river town in Iowa, and he was teaching business classes at the University of Northern Iowa. And he was sort of driving around, and he went through Winterset, Iowa, which is the birthplace of John Wayne. And he noticed, you know, these covered bridges that, you know, are... This is the most Chamber of Commerce uh, sentence ever. Uh, the largest group of covered bridges that exist in one area in the western half of the Mississippi Valley occur in Madison County. So he was driving around and he probably thought that sentence. He's like, this is the largest number of covered bridges in the western half of the Mississippi Valley. And he had also had this sort of idea about like, a middle-aged Italian wife who you know was living in Iowa and he sort of fused these things together to create The Bridges of Madison County. It was a wildly popular book. And then, you know, like the de rigueur sort of book club book. And yeah, Did uh, you revisit like articles in Parade Magazine for background? Yes, yes I did. <laughs> I very much did. Um, and a few years later, one of Nick's favorite people of all time, Mr. Clint Eastwood, adapted this film for the screen or this the book for the screen and put himself as the romantic lead. And it's a little weird to have Clint Eastwood be like the beefcake and like see him sort of walking around. Think he didn't shirt look off. around and try to find somebody hotter. <laughs> <laughs> he Such could not a find. Thing does not exist. Uh, it was, it was still arguably on the on the on the edge of like he still looks pretty damn good. No, he looks he looks good, but it's like you know it's he's not. Older. He's older. He's definitely a lot older. So it's it is it's unique in the sense that it's like you really don't see a film with people of this age having a romance like this because it is a very physical so the story if you're not familiar is um uh, these two kids come back to Iowa after their mother has passed away and they're going through her things they discover that she their mother has written this very detailed account of her four-day affair with this uh, National Geographic photographer who came to the area to shoot the National Geographic cover story, which try to wrap your mind around the, like people actually thought that this was a real issue of National Geographic. And it's like, okay, so covered bridges, why would anybody put that on the cover of a magazine? (laughs) Why they exist in this area is because, you know, there are obviously there are a lot of farmers and they needed to transport their goods to the cities. And, you know, after the field equipment got too big, they really these bridges are sort of out of use now. Um, but it's 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 not really 
they're not good to look at. They're just very, these very functional, weird covered bridges. But he's there and he's very, you know, he's very insistent on getting the light just right. And, you know, like waking up at dawn to really capture the, you know, he's taking all these shot, different shots of these like rectangular, ugly brick red bridges. But, you know, uh, he seduces Meryl Streep, who plays Francesca and her Italian accent is not so good. It's kind of taken me out of the film a lot. But there's also, in terms of locations, you know, there's the farmhouse where a lot of the action, figuratively and literally, happens. There's a little diner where the Redfield woman, who had an affair, and everyone knows about the affair, comes in and gets rejected. And I have to say that is totally a real uh, small town thing. There's a Colombian saying, which is, Pueblo Pequeño, Infierno Grande, which means small town, big hell, roughly. So I, and, I, and it's like, that's, that shit's real. Um, <laughs> uh, and there's also this kind of weird scene where the photographer takes her to this jumping jazz joint in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> which is like full of all these black people who are like playing jazz and sort of just enjoying themselves. And I mean, the building itself is totally like a bar you would see in the middle, kind of the middle of nowhere in Iowa. But it, in terms of like black people sort of hanging out, like this being a spot for people, not really. That's sort of invented for the film. There's no jazz scene in Cedar Rapids? Uh, this is not in Cedar Rapids. There would well, be a jazz scene in Cedar Rapids, but not in Winterset, Iowa. It could be a little roadhouse. There, so there were bootlegging routes along the way, you know, two major cities there are places that would have these sorts of things, but this is obviously in the 50s. It's not really, you know, it, it would make more sense if it was, a, you know, in Des Moines, let's say, which actually did, or Buxton, Iowa, which had like a sizable. Yeah, Buxton was pretty jumping. Yeah. A lot, of, <laughs> a lot of people came to work in the mines and then the mines closed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, watching this, I had never actually seen this before um i've kind of avoided it but watching it now it is kind of a sad thing because she's telling this brief moment of joy she had with this guy to her children and you know the last shot of the film is her son who is just absolutely mortified by the idea that his mother has ever had sex except to create a baby except to create him and his sister um you know dumping her ashes out over the bridge where the photographer's ashes have also been scattered and it's and it's just so haunting because you see her ashes blow into the wind against the backdrop of this red covered bridge and it, her ultimate message is you know life is fleeting do what makes you happy and like live your life to the fullest and it's so heartbreaking and throughout the film there's a sense francesca gives off this feeling that she's been left behind by a lot of things that her life isn't really what she wanted it to and that's such a kind of a great metaphor for these are areas where there's no new businesses coming in all of this sort of like mom and pop stores get replaced by Walmart. And then, you know, there's no revitalization. The population is mostly old people and there's kind of like nothing to do. And so it is, it's a place that's been left behind, right? It's a part of America that's been left behind. And so it's kind of poignant to me in that way too. Alas, we must end it here. But before we do, 
let's each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. So I saw Burn After Reading for the first time recently. Um, and, you know, it, it is, I will say, I don't like Southland Tales, even though it is super predictive of what our current political situation is. But I would say that Burn After Reading is too. And I like this film a lot more. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it feels a lot more like a film uh, to me. And it's just very funny. And just sort of the idea that all these people die, have their lives ruined. But maybe we didn't learn anything because we really know these higher up, you know, intelligence people aren't actually that intelligent. So in our government, maybe uh, that's so hot. That's um, a very Trumpian observation you have there. Have you noticed... That guy's not very smart. Have you? Has anyone? I don't want to say this, but have you noticed he's not very bright? I've known that since the late '80s. Recently, I saw I was watching for research movies with Stuart Copeland soundtracks. So mm -hmm. I watched um, this film, Out of Bounds, the '80s film, directed by I think his name's Richard Tuggle, <laughs> and his only Cute. other directing credit was Tightrope. The, Which is directed by Clint Eastwood. No, but... No, I mean, it is actually directed actually, by Clint Eastwood. Actually, but he Eastwood. has the directing... It's his only other credit. Yeah, Tuggle got the heave-ho on yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> Which is a nasty movie. <laughs> Who says I haven't? <laughs> um, Out of Bounds stars Anthony Michael Hall. And it's just a ridiculous 80s action movie that's very fun. Um, he is plays a, a yokel from Iowa, I think. <laughs> anyway, he, he's he, he's a farm boy and with knife wielding skills and he you got a lot of free time in iowa you gotta learn exactly something exactly he can throw that knife and and hit it wherever he wants but then he travels to los angeles to meet up with his older brother and he gets the old bag switcheroo at LAX and he ends up with a bag of a million dollars worth of heroin. And the film just just blows away from there. It goes um, out of bounds, you could say. It goes a, way out of bounds. Way out of bounds. There's just ridiculous action scenes and a lot of like running through Los Angeles and the Los Angeles punk scene. Susie and the Banshees performs in it, which Ooh. is great. Meatloaf has a small role. There's <laughs> no small role for Meatloaf. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, out of bounds. It was fun. Cool. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything at the ready, but I did start off by talking about John Wilson's new film, um, and I feel like that maybe I'll save the time and punt it back to that John Wilson's films. <laughs> the new one, it'll come out, and I recommend almost all of his films are available on Vimeo. And they're all incredibly worth going down the rabbit hole and watching. They're about 10, 15 minutes a piece. Very funny. Very, very smart. Cool. I will say that I was very blindsided by David Lowry's A Ghost Story. A Eric is pumping his fist. Yes. <laughs> a movie which... I did not feel very prepped for uh, by the descriptions I'd gotten of it as a kind of pared down back to basics movie uh, after the uh, foray into big budgets with Pete's Dragon. I freely confess that Mr. Lowry's films to date have not exactly been my cup of tea, but I was really moved by this one. 
And moreover, it transforms into several different films in the course of watching and is perhaps overreaching at times, but in a way that I am very sympathetic to. So that that's my movie. Well, thank you all for coming. I, I feel like I know America a lot better now. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.